Let's turn for Bible reading to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll be reading the whole chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes is after the Song of Songs, sorry, it's after Proverbs, actually it's after Proverbs, before the Song of Songs, so you get as far as Song of Songs, you've gone a bit too far. So let's read from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's read from God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And we read from the very first verse. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the house, heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the cracking of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that which giveth life to them that have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he had made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider God also hath set the one over against the other, to the end that man should find nothing after him. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this, yea, also from this withdraw not thy hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Wisdom straighteneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city, for there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Also take no heed unto all words that I have spoken,
lest I hear thy servant curse thee. For oft times also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hast cursed others. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said I would be wise, but it was far from thee. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart it snares, and nets, and her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. Which yet my soul seeketh, but find not. One man among, one man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those I have, have I not found. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. So rich, the holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Okay, can you please turn back to the chapter we read earlier? And we'll be looking at Ecclesiastics. And I'll be taking my text from verse 20. Verse 20 of Ecclesiastics chapter 7. So Ecclesiastics chapter 7 verse 20. And it reads this. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinned not. Now these words were spoken by Almighty God. We know that God inspired the Bible. He is the author of the Bible. The person who wrote it, the human being who wrote it, is just a human author. And we shall come to that in a, in a few minutes. But God is the author of the Bible and every single word of the Bible is by God. I'm one of those who believes in plenary, plenary inerrancy. What does plenary inerrancy mean? It means that every single word in the Bible is authored by God. Now, there are some people who say that some of the words of the Bible is authored by God. When you go under that route, you go down to an infinitely deep hole that you won't be able to get yourself out of. Because the moment you begin to separate what you think God spoke and what you think God didn't spoke in the Bible. The question is, where do you end? So I believe that God spoke every single word in the Bible. And Ecclesiastic, this book we're looking at this evening, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Kohelet. And this refers to someone related to an assembly such as a preacher or a teacher. The book is concerned with the purpose and value of human life. I believe that this book is a call to reality for those who live in today's world. See, the Bible is relevant to every single generation that's lived ever since it was inspired by God. The Bible has never been out of date. There are many people who want to make believe that the Bible no longer applies today. Those people are liars. 
Because when you call upon them to justify making such blasphemous statements, they won't justify it. They will just attack you. They will attack the word of God. Now the opening verses of this book give an idea of the human author of the book. What this book is all about and what message it seeks to convey to the world. Now let me read some of the verses in the opening chapter. So if you don't mind, just quickly turn back to chapter 1. And what I'll be doing is I'll be reading the last seven verses. And we begin to see an insight into what this book is all about. And the last seven verses start from verse 12. And it begins, it says, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sword travail had God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is more grief, and he that increased knowledge increased sorrow. What somber and very, very reflective words we've just read there. Verses 1 and verse 12 of this book inform us that King Solomon was the human author of this book. Now, just let's quickly look at verse 1 of that same chapter 1. It reads, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we know from that, verse 1, that the author is the son of David and is also king of Jerusalem. But, some people may argue, in the Bible, son sometimes may mean grandson. For example, Belshazzar in Daniel was referred to the son as Nebuchadnezzar. But we know that Belshazzar was actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And there are many other descriptions as such. But when you look at verse 1 and verse 12 together, then you get a picture that you can't run away from. So let's look at, so we look at verse 1, let's look at verse 12. It says, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, biblical history teaches us that Solomon was the only son of David who ruled Israel in Jerusalem. That is a fact. Now, why? Because subsequent kings who ruled in Jerusalem only ruled Judah. That's the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Because after Solomon was the divided kingdom. So the kingdom of Israel was split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So we know that this book was written by Solomon. Now that we know the human author of the book, he continues into the theme of the book. He starts by describing the worthlessness of the things of this world. Then he goes on to describe how himself, he himself has sought to labor and live for the things of this world. Yet he found no satisfaction in what he sought. As a matter of fact, what he found was a vexation of his spirit. So we can see that the result of seeking this world was a negative one. The result of him seeking this world made him worse than he was before. That is just a fact. This is a confession that he's making here. 
So having looked at the author and the brief examination of his purpose in writing this book, we arrive at our text. At our text. Let me read it again. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. This is a serious indictment here. What is an indictment? An indictment is a charge. You know, saying that you are charged with this offence and you are guilty of it. And that's what God is saying. He says, for there is not a just man. So he looks at all the human beings that lived in Solomon's day. But not just in Solomon's days, down to our day. Because what the word of God says is true. Not just for Solomon's day, but it's true forever. And he's saying, there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Very, very serious indictment. Amazingly, the author does not exclude himself. He includes himself in those that have been indicted by God. Now, you might ask this question. What does the author mean by the following phrase? A just man doeth good and sinneth not. What does he mean by that? To answer this question, I will take you to the penultimate verse of this book. And this is found in chapter 12, verse 13. So quickly turn to chapter 12, verse 13. That's the penultimate verse. And I'll read it for you. Chapter 12, verse 13. It reads this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So Solomon is coming to the end of the book and he's saying this is what we're talking about. This is the conclusion of everything I've been telling you. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Now, when you look at that, the author describes the fearing of God and keeping of his commandments as the whole duty. Now, let me ask you this question this evening. Have you always feared God and kept his commandments? Does that define your life? Because if it doesn't, then we're going back to our text here. But before you answer that question, I'd like to warn you very severely here. Make sure that you answer it very, very truthfully. Because when you don't answer that question very truthfully, what you're claiming then is that our text, God is lying, basically. That's what you're indirectly claiming. Because the text is pretty straightforward. You don't need to have a theological degree to understand what God is saying here. He's saying there's not a just man upon earth, not even one that doeth good and sinneth not. But let me look at further declarations that God has made regarding this statement. Because it's not just in that text that God has made that statement. He's made it in other parts of the Bible. And I'll read some verses out for you. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is God making a statement here. And he's making it at the very first creation. So the world has not even lasted that many years when God has determined that the wickedness of man was so great that all his thoughts, all his imagination was wicked continually. There wasn't even anything good in man. Psalm chapter 14 verses 2 and 3. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Again, none is what the Bible says. None. No exceptions here. That includes me, actually. So, if every one of you point the finger to me and say, you too? Oh, yes. My hands up. Every one of us. None of us have done good. 
Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Very, very important charge there. Deceitful is what it says. Did it say? It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Is there any exceptions? Not in the text. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 to 12. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles. Well, when the author, human authors, talking about Jews and Gentiles, it's just talking about everybody. Because in those days, the world is judged in terms of Jews and Gentiles. So it means every human being. That they are all under sin. So it says that we are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. So none, none seeks after God. If you are here today seeking after God, it's because God has actually brought you here. He's actually made you seek Him. We don't seek God in our own state. No. Verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So that's an indictment here. My final scripture on this point Romans chapter 3 verse 23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God Now he didn't draw any distinction here He didn't say oh for some have sinned and come short of the glory of God No he says all All means all in scripture There are times when there are distinctions between all It may not necessarily be all But in this particular verse the literal sense is everyone All have sinned and come short of the glory of God so we see from these verses that no human being can boast of ever fearing God and keeping his commandments. We've all done wickedly in the sight of God. Unfortunately, we now live in a society that is willing to blame everybody apart from ourselves for our sins. We have psychologists and other so-called professionals claiming that our circumstances are responsible for our sins. The Bible sees this very, very differently. To prove this, let me take you on a journey. And the journey I'll take you about is what the Bible has written, the Bible itself. And let's go back to creation to take a critical and objective examination of the claim that our circumstances is the reason for our sinful behavior. When God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the Garden of Eden, a perfect environment, a place where there is no sorrow, exceptionally excellent environment. As a matter of fact, we human beings today, we will never be able to comprehend what the Garden of Eden was because it was a perfect environment, a place where there is fullness of joy. No sorrows was ever. He placed them there and he gave them only one law to obey, just one. And as there, that is, as Adam and Eve and our Creator, God has every right to command us what to do and what not to do. He gave them one single command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to disobey God. Was the environment responsible for this disobedience? I don't think so at all. No way. It's no, they were in a perfect environment. They were in a perfect place where they should not sin. If we are to believe this, psychologists are saying, oh, your environment is making you sin. But Adam and Eve, they were in a perfect environment. A place where they can enjoy God. Where they can obey Him. But what? They fell into sin. And one of the reasons why they fell into sin is this. Pride. They did not think that they were, um, um, you know, creatures enough 
to obey God. They felt that they knew better than God. God said, the day you eat from this fruit, you shall die. The devil lied to them and they believed the devil more than they believed God. Let me read one verse in scripture that brings this whole matter into its correct perspective. What the sin of Adam and Eve has led to. And that can be found in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. And it reads this. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So Adam and Eve, they are responsible for what the world is like today. The next time you sneeze, have a headache or any ailment, you can rightfully remember that the sin of Adam is what plunged the world into the condition that the world is today. And your headache, your stomachache, your illness is a direct result of Adam's sin against God. Now, there is a popular question that many cynics ask today. This question goes like this. If there is a God, why is there sickness, death, and pain in this world? Many of them ask, I've once been asked that, and the guy, he wasn't even waiting to, for me to answer him. He just walked away. That made me know he was a cynic. The question is, is there an answer for that question? And yes, there is. You see, when someone asks you that question, apart from quoting Romans chapter 5 verse 12, they may not be willing to wait for that. Ask them, that have they considered the fact that their sin is part of the reason why this world is what it is today? They may turn around and say, what about your sin? Oh yeah, admit to it. But the question is to them, have they really considered it? Because if God is going to make this place a better place, then he has to deal with the sin issue. And where does it start? If you, if you really want him to become that God that will bring righteousness into the world and deal with sin. Do you think, what about you being the good place for him to start? Now, before I carry on, let me just give you an analogy here. There's a wealthy billionaire, I'm not going to mention his name, who thinks that this world is overpopulated. He thinks that there are too many human beings in this world. And one of the key things I always say, and my wife actually laughs sometimes, is that why doesn't this billionaire lead by example? He thinks that there are so many people in the world. Well, he's part of those consuming the resources of this world. He should lead by example. He should... Whatever solution he thinks he should to reduce the number of people in this world, then he should start with himself. And then at least, you know, we know that he's really serious about too many people in the world. But the reality is that many of these people say these things, but they don't think about the logical conclusion of what they're talking about. They think it applies to other people. And it's the same here with sin. When people ask these cynical questions, they never think about themselves. They think that they've worked it out so much, and they think that their opinion is what matters the most. The next thing we need to understand is that God has found each and every one of us guilty of sinning against him. No exceptions whatsoever. I will share two of the scriptures that I mentioned earlier. The first one is Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here, God has declared that every one of us has sinned against him. Now when God makes a declaration, he doesn't invite any debate or argument from those whom he has made such declaration to. The reason is because he doesn't really have to. He doesn't have to. He's the creator. And we are his creatures. 
God knows that those who reject his declaration do so at their own eternal peril. He knows that. So why should he get into debate with us? He doesn't have to. Now this declaration has eternal implications that we will all do well to understand. Let's look at a few scriptural implications derived from God's declaration that we have sinned against him. These implications are what God has promised to those that sin against him. So I'm going to quote you a number of scriptures of God's promises of his threats to those that sin against him. Start with Psalm 145 verse 20. The Lord preserveth all of them that love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Ezekiel 18.4 Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18.20 The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Matthew 25 verse 46 And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in this body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. Finally, James 1.15 Then when lust had conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The above scriptures are God's promises to those who continue in their sin. However, we also need to examine how God has dealt with sin in the past, because yes, God has dealt with sin in the past, and has given us historical perspective of how he has done that. Our first parents, for example, Adam and Eve, they plunged the world into sin, and we're still having the effects of their sin till this very day. Next, we look at the flood. God wiped out the whole world, comprising millions of humans, probably billions. There were only eight human survivors of that flood. Imagine a country like the United States, over 300 million people, and a plague sweeps that country, and only eight people survive. I mean, that is something that's worth thinking about. Because I honestly believe that there were millions of people before the flood and only eight of those people survived that flood. God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, only three people survived that destruction, Lot and his two daughters. Only two, and um, Mr. Brian Miles, he touched on that slightly this morning, only two of the over 600,000 men that came out of Egypt entered the promised land. Only two. God destroyed the entire army of the Assyrians, 185,000 soldiers. He destroyed them, wiped them out. What did these Assyrians do? They've, they've conquered quite a few nations. Then they marched to Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem. And all the other nations they've conquered, they, so they said, you know, Jerusalem is going to be a daughter. But Hezekiah went into the house of God and he prayed. And God wiped out the whole Assyrian army. Then God destroyed almost 15,000 people in the wilderness, just at his hope. Wiped them out. First of all, the land swallowed them up. Then he sent fire to devour them. So as we continue, let me ask you this very important question again. Do you fear God 
and keep his commandments. We have identified earlier that God has found every one of us guilty of sinning against him. You might then ask, what is sin? Well, sin is not fearing God and not keeping his commandment. That's what sin is. If you're not a Christian, then I have some bad news for you. In the eyes of God, all that you've ever done is sin against him. Not just that, all that you're doing today is sin against God. Everything that you do is sin against God. I'll give you some scriptures that will put these sins in their correct perspective. So I'm not trying to make these things up. That's what the Bible says. And I'd like to bring your attention to how serious your position is. Now, what a non-Christian describes as a good act is not done to glorify God. It's not done specifically because they want to obey God. It's done for any other reasons other than to glorify God or to obey God. So yes, it looks good on paper, but it's not done in response to God's demand that you do it. And that's what makes it sin. But let's carry on. Psalm 7:11. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Proverbs 15 verse 8. Listen to this one very well. This is a very important one. I don't want anyone to miss this. He, Proverbs chapter 15 verse 8. Sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. You hear that? The sacrifice. So if you are not a Christian and you put money into the offering as this, this, this morning for example. And you are not a Christian. God is saying that that is an abomination unto him. It's how God sees things, not how I see it. Isaiah chapter 6 verse, sorry, Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. But we are all an unclean thing. It's Isaiah speaking here. So obviously he's, he's referring to himself as well because he's not saying you are all an unclean thing. No, he's saying we, including himself, are all an unclean thing. And all our righteousness, again, speaking to himself as well, as filthy rags. And we all do faith as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So think about it. The author of Isaiah, the human author, he includes himself as a goodness to be filthy rags. Righteousness as filthy rags. So it's not actually saying you, my audience. It's saying including me. And that's the job of the preacher. A preacher that's saying that he's excluded from this condemnation is lying. Because God's condemnation, he condemns every human being. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So what are you doing today trying to please God? It is not done in faith. And faith can only be exercised if you are a genuine Christian. If you are not a Christian, you are not exercising faith. And whatever you do, if it's not done by faith, then it is sin. You can't please him. If you can't please him, then you're sinning against him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So a non-believer who is, not, who is eating, he's not eating to the glory of God. So even in eating, he's sinning against God. So... I have to lay all the problem here so that we can understand how serious this matter is in the sight of God. God takes these sins very seriously. So, the non-Christian who never gives glory to God sins against God every time he eats. 
He sins against God every time he gives to any charity. Of course, in charities. So we have learned a few things from what we have examined so far. We have learned that about the futility and vexation that chasing the things of this world leads to. Solomon, of course, is a prime example. We have learned that God has found every one of us guilty of sinning against him. We have learned of some of the implications of sinning against God in terms of how God has dealt with sin in the past and how he will deal with it in the future. For the rest of this sermon, we'll be looking at God's plan of salvation to his people and what he demands of you to be saved, that is, to those who are not Christians. Now, Adam's fall into sin did not take God by surprise. As a matter of fact, God ordained Adam's sin for a good purpose to himself. Yes, Adam's sin, and indeed, every sin has two purposes. The first purpose for every sin is the glory of God. The second purpose is wickedness of the sinner. Now, many of you may shudder. You mean sin glorifies God? I'll give you instances and scriptures. Now, God is glorified by the sin of man when God either forgives, shows mercy on the sinner, and is glorified in the mercy, or God is also glorified when he casts impenitent sinners into hell. So there are two ways in which God glorifies from any, every sin. He gets glory in forgiving the sinner, showing mercy to the sinner, allowing the sinner to become his child. And when he begins to sanctify that sinner, that, that sinner who goes from enjoying sin to now resisting sin, goes from being a friend of the devil to becoming an enemy of the devil, goes from loving what the devil loves to hating what the devil loves and seeking to resist the work of the devil. That's the glory to God. You know, I was speaking earlier this afternoon about why is it that when Christians become Christians, God does not delete sin from our lives immediately. I mean, many times I'm frustrated. I wish I can be completely sin-free. And I was listening to a sermon yesterday, and the man suggested, said, one of the reasons is because God wants to be glorified when even in our sinful um, and frailty, we're still resisting the devil. We're still refusing to sin against God. We're still telling the devil that, no, I'm not going to involve in this sin. But as I was thinking about it, today, I began to understand that there might be another reason. And the other reason is this. Think about how Christians are murdered today. Can you imagine if Christians become completely sinless? The world will hate us more than it currently does, won't it? I doubt if Christians will even survive for very long after becoming saved, they will kill us. And probably many governments will make legislations to, 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 to ban us from this, this world. So probably that's another reason. So, so we see that. But we see the glory of God. And let me tell you how God shows mercy. Because God's mercy comes at great cost to himself. It wasn't a kind of mercy of a pie in the sky kind of mercy. No, God's mercy came at great cost to himself. Now in Isaiah chapter 53, we see a vivid picture of how the sins of God's people came at great cost to himself. Now the verse reads, Isaiah 53 verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Who is the he referred to in this verse? Now verses 1 to 4 and the rest of the chapter provides us with the answer. And if you can, please turn to Isaiah 53 and we'll read some verses from that chapter. 
Isaiah 53, if you can, please. Isaiah 53. I think Isaiah is after the book of Ezekiel. No, it's after the book of Songs of Songs. So there's just one book that separates the book in Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And then you go to chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 53. My apologies there. Chapter 53. So we read from verses 1 to 4. Isaiah chapter 53. Okay, let's read. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For it shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, no comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now these words describe a man above all men. It describes the king above all kings. But before I reveal his identity, let us look at the rest of the chapter. And we'll read from verse 6 all the way to the end. So that same Isaiah, we've already seen verse 5. Let's carry on from verse 6. And verse 6 is a follow-up onto what is a description of the people that God has saved. Let's read. All we, so the author here is including himself, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before Hashirus is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he has numbered with the transgression. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgression. Now let me highlight some of the salient parts of this chapter. In verse 6 we read, And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 11 we read, He shall see the travel of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, and shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear the test their iniquities. Towards the end of verse 12 we read, And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. There are some consistencies that need to be understood within Isaiah chapter 53 in particular and the whole Bible as a whole. The consistent message is that God and his son paid the punishment for the sins of his people. This is the meaning of the Lord laying on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Now, us in this context and all in the context means the people of God. 
The human writer uses the word us, knowing that he is a believer as the recipients of God's forgiveness through Christ. So us here refers to those who believe in Christ as Isaiah does. This is made evident from verse 11. He used more restrictive language in describing the recipients in verse 11. He uses the word many, which certainly does not mean all. Then he refers to those many as the whole, as those whose iniquity will be borne by Christ. Finally, in verse 12, the restrictive language is once again used as referring to many. Hence, the transgression referred to later in the verse as being interceded for at the many first mentioned in verses 11 and 12. So God, at great cost to himself, paid the punishment of the sins of his people through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So we have seen God's plan of salvation to his people. Now what does God demand of you if you are not a Christian? Before I reveal that, what God demands of you, I would like to give a word of encouragement to those of us who are already yielded to God's demand. The people I'm referring to are those who have obeyed the gospel, Christians, born-again Christians. These are people who know that God will be justified if he casts us into the flames of hell. These are people who know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing of any worth. These are people whose only boast is in Christ. Christ has made some everlasting promises to us, his people. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Christ declares, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave it, gave them me is better than all and no man is able to plug them out of my father's hand. Christ makes some wonderful promises that will help us in those moments when we lack the needed assurance of salvation and trust me sometimes we Christians go through that phase. He declares that he gives unto us eternal life. So the eternal life Christ gives us is a current possession. We have it now. Yes, we're going to come into that eternal life sometime in the future, but we have that as our possession now. It's just like possessing your car. It's just like possessing your home. It's something in your hand that you can see. And the eternal life that God gives us, we have it now. We can appreciate it now. We can enjoy and delight in it even now. <clears throat> so it's a current possession. Also, Christ promises us that we shall never perish. Now, never in Christ's language means never. Because Christ is immutable. He doesn't change. Why? But let me, let, me, let me give you something further. He declares that neither shall any man pluck us out of his hand. So Christ is not only saying he's immutable here. But he's saying he's omnipotent. So he says that, look, you are my possession today. And none can take you out of my hand you belong to me. That's what Christ is telling us. We belong to him. None can take us from his hand. He's omnipotent. So no power on earth can take us out of his hand. But as if that was not enough, he declares the unity of him and his father over this matter when he declares that neither can anyone pluck them out of my father's hand. So, we've, so anyone who wants to cause a genuine believer to fall away, that person is not able to do it because he has to fight through the father he has to fight through the son but also he has to overcome God's immunity, sorry, immutability 
So there are three battles that person has to face. And as far as I know, God has never lost a battle. God is always the winner. So this wonderful promise puts what Armenians teach to big shame. So let me come back to those who are not Christians. What does God demand from you if you are not a Christian? I will read from Acts chapter 17 verses 30 and 31. Because that's where what God demands from you can be found. Acts chapter 17 verses 13 and 31. And it reads, And the times, okay, Acts chapter 17 verses 30 to 31. And the times of this ignorance God winked but now commanded all men everywhere to repent, because he had appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he had ordained, whereof he had given assurance unto all men in that he had raised him from the dead. Now what is repentance? Repentance is the turning away from sin and turning towards God. This is a change of mind about yourself and about God. Repentance means that you accept and believe that you've sinned against God. Repentance means that you accept and believe that you have never done anything good to deserve any merit or praise from God. Repentance means that you now see yourself as God sees you, a wretched, rebellious sinner who only deserves God's judgment. Repentance means that you now view yourself as a person whose sins need to be forgiven by God through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, I've heard many non-Christians say, ah, I pray the Lord forgives me. Well, you see, God has a process by which he forgives. He doesn't just forgive people willy-nilly. And when people do not submit themselves to that process, they will never be forgiven. The only by which God can forgive is through Jesus Christ. That's only me. And the thing I have to ask you do not believe is that you need to repent because as verse 31 that I've just read declares, he has appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he had ordained, whereof he had given assurance unto all men that he had raised him from the dead. Now, who is the he referred to here? Because God has appointed the day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man. Who is that man? Now that man is God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. Now Christ is the standard by which God would judge you on that day if you are not a Christian. Christ is the perfect son of God. He is the only one who can truthfully, truthfully declare that he has fully obeyed God. He's done all that pleased the Father. Only Christ can do that. Now, if you are relying on your own righteousness, then Christ is the one you are up against. And I can assure you tonight that you will fail woefully. And God will delight in casting you to hell. My question is, is that what you really want? Today is the day of salvation. Please don't put this off. Because a time may come when God will set you in your way. He has done that in the past. He did that to King Pharaoh of Egypt. We heard this this morning where Pharaoh hardened his heart. God declares in his word that he will do this in the future. And let me give you my two final scriptures here. I give you the first one is Hebrews chapter 3 verses 15 to 17. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 15 to 17. And these are very important verses that I'm giving to you because they give examples of where God can set people in their ways. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 15 to 17. It says, while it is said... Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the day, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, how bit, 
not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? So Apostle Paul here, the human writer of this text, exhorts his congregation not to harden their hearts against God while they hear the voice of God. Then he gives them a historical perspective of what occurred to those who hardened their hearts. The consequence is that the vast majority of them perished in their sins. The second scripture is taken from Proverbs chapter 1, from verses 22 to 33. Now I know this is a handful of scriptures, but I need to read it. And to be honest, I won't need to do any exposition on those verses because they actually speak for themselves. Very, very easy to understand. And I implore you to please listen to these very, very carefully. And I implore Christians too to listen because it gives us a picture of what God has saved us from. So read Proverbs chapter 1 from verse 22. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning. And fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel and will none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your iniquity calamity. I will mock when ye fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, then distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They will none of my counsel, they despise all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whosoever hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from the fear of God. We see that God says he will laugh at the calamity of such people. Let me give you a scenario. Maybe this person has heard the gospel several times, hardened their hearts so many times. Say, oh yeah, I'll look at you in the future. And they got struck with their illness. Maybe they have a very terminal diagnosis. Maybe it's a cancer of some sort. And they now want to kneel down and pray to God. And they just sense that God is not hearing them. It's just prayer into the wind. And why should God hear them at that point in time? When there's been so many opportunities for such person to repent. There have been so many opportunities for them to turn to Christ. But they've ignored those opportunities, rebuffed them. So why should God then all of a sudden hear their prayers now. He knows in their hearts that what they're trying to do is they're looking for a get-out clause. They're looking for a security, some kind of insurance policy to escape hell. They're not crazy because they will get away from their sins. God, I've seen it so many times. Many people get struck with an illness. On occasions, God answers their prayers, give them back their health. Guess what? They fall away again. So interested now I'll find some time later he's seen it so many times so why should he now change his matter for this particular person so we see here it's a serious matter to ignore the voice of God so as this text may come from God God may fix people in their sins and to be honest I honestly believe that there are people alive today whom God has completely fixed in their sins they will get in contact with the gospel they will not hear 
Or the devil will find ways for them to, to disobey the gospel. I pray that this will not be the case for you. May the Lord bless his words to us.